Hello and welcome to episode six of the newly reformed 15 Minutes of Football podcast. Jordan is here in all his glory. As always. Unfortunately. But <laughs> to, to, to counteract that unfortunate unfortunate uh, presence on the podcast is uh, Matt Addison of the Liverpool Echo. Welcome back to Matt. Was on with James Prescott before and now he's, now he's on again to discuss Liverpool's slightly dubious... Uh, form of, of late. Yeah, thank you for, for having me on again, chaps. Not the, <laughs> the best week for for Liverpool, but we are where we are. And, well, that's uh, why you're on. That's why you're on. Discuss, put it that way. I mean, Definitely plenty to, to discuss. Yeah, you got to. Look I can do it with a big old smile on my face as well. Yeah, and, and as, I, as I said off air, uh, off podcast, uh, Jordan with a big smile on his face. It's just one of those faces you want to squeeze um, <laughs> and, and, and hit against the wall. Uh, I don't advocate violence um, to anyone except my co-host. Um, so I think, I mean, yeah, Matt, uh, it, it, as unfortunate as it is Liverpool's poor form, it has given you a slot on one of the best uh, podcasts around. So you got to look at the upsides. And I mean, we've split it with 15 minutes of football. We talk about topics that have changed this slightly. We talk about them in 15 minutes approximately, as opposed to 15 minutes or less, because sometimes uh, we have a tendency to jump over that 15 minute threshold. Uh, because good discussion cannot be postponed. Um, and we're going to start, really, with one look at Liverpool uh, in terms of has Liverpool's centre-back crisis contributed to the regression of the whole team? I mean, the answer in terms of has it affected their form and their results is obvious, but has it affected from top to bottom the performance of the whole team, from Alisson to Mane and Salah? In a word, yes, I think it has. Um, I think the midfield is is the obvious point. I think the midfield has, has been hugely, hugely lacking without Jordan Henderson and Fabinho. I think in a normal world, if, if COVID didn't exist, Liverpool would have probably added one or two more players last summer. But I still think those two would have been in that midfield along with Thiago Alcantara. And I think we'd see a completely different version of, of Thiago as well. We've not seen anything like the best of, of him so far this season. So... I think, yeah, the, the midfield is, is the big one for me is in terms of the, the knock-on effect. You've obviously lost Fabinho and Henderson to injury, but you know even when they've been fit, they've had to, to slot in at centre-back. I think there's a, a sort of minimal impact on, on the full-backs, the, the forwards. Obviously, there's, there's a slight knock-on effect. I think it, it makes Liverpool a little bit more cautious, a little bit more wary of, of throwing themselves forward, but I don't think the style has, has completely changed. We've still seen that high line you know, it's maybe not worked, but they've still tried to, to implement it. And I think it, it certainly has influenced Alisson. I mean, for me, still the best goalkeeper out there or certainly one of, of the top two. But he's obviously made mistakes. And I wonder whether those mistakes against Manchester City, for example, would they have happened if he had two proper centre-backs in front of him? Would the, the confidence of the team, the way that the team is set up, would that have sort of stopped those things from taking place? I think possibly it would have done. So I think there's an argument for, for all over the pitch, this being a negative sort of knock-on effect for Liverpool. But I think for me, the, the midfield is, is the one that's really, really lacking as a result of it. Well, yeah, I, was, I, I think that's spot on, really, because when you put Fabinho and Henderson... I mean, Fabinho, actually, when he went into the centre-back position, did really well. Um, yeah. Very consistent in terms of his positioning... A very big physical presence, can play the ball out well from the back. Uh, but then when Henderson goes there as well, you're taking really out, um, you're taking the heart and, and, the, and the bite and the energy out of Liverpool's wonderful midfield from last season. And, you know, Henderson in particular, box to box, drives the team forward, helps with the press. When the midfield has the energy behind the attack, the attack press as well, then the midfield press as well, the midfield press as well, knowing behind them you've got Virgil van Dijk and Gomez. Gomez, a very, very fast centre-back. Van Dijk, less so, but a probably the best centre-back in the world. So from that point of view, I, I think it, it does do a lot, certainly from a pressing perspective. Um, you touched on it a little bit as well. Do you think maybe that the critics have been coming in for the likes of, well, for Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, this season more because when he's been pushing forward uh, and going into advanced positions. When Liverpool have been hit on the turnover, there just isn't that protection in behind that there was last season. So it makes Alexander-Arnold look 
like a much worse fullback than maybe he actually is. Or always showing that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think we've spoken plenty of times. All of us probably have at some point over the last few months about Thiago's tackling and how poor he's been really defensively in this sort of team yeah. that Liverpool have. I think that's you know, a pretty obvious point to, to make. He's not been the best at times in terms of that. That's obviously not his game. I think if you have Jordan Henderson in front of Trent, that completely changes it for him. I think. People forget as well that, that Trent has had COVID this year. He struggled with that. He's come back. He's been rushed back because Liverpool basically didn't have anybody else to put there. They didn't really trust Nico Williams. They didn't really have any of the, the centre-backs to move over to right back and, and cover for him. So he had to come back. He's had injuries. It's been a, a difficult season, I think. It, it's one that he'll learn a lot from. But I do think, you know, with, I suppose it's an obvious point to make, but it's a, a point worth making. I think with a proper team around him, like the rest of these Liverpool players this season, they become... You know, 10 times as good as what they are if you've got the rest of the team in there with them because Liverpool's a very sort of system-orientated team. It, it's not yes. about individuals. Mm. It's about the collective. Mm. It's about having Henderson, having you know, a peak Mohamed Salah, for example, which I think pretty much he's the only one this season who's been anywhere mm. near his best on an individual level. But you know, in terms of, of the whole system, the whole team together, even Roberto Firmino can help you know, tracking back and, and pressing from the front and stuff like that. So if if the team sort of around him is falling apart, I think it's it's difficult to, to judge Trent properly. Yeah, no, I think I think that as you both kind of alluded to, I think the midfield any massive thing, and I think that's had a knock-on effect massively to the fullbacks because, I mean, obviously you kind of lose you lose the ability to win the ball high up the pitch, and then suddenly defenses can be a lot more organised, and and I think that's one massive thing that Liverpool have lacked this season is. Kind of catching teams off guard, where a Trent or a Robertson they can they can get the ball in early and they can pick someone out, and and so many goals for Liverpool in the last couple of seasons have been scored that way, and I think this season that one of the big things is not kind of winning the ball back as fast in midfield because you've not had maybe your two best defensive midfielders there. Mm. I was going to say, Matt, what point, because Liverpool's centre-back, I, I almost compare it to a game of Jenga where you take Van Dijk out and you pull away the two bottom uh, bricks and it's still OK, it's still kind of sturdy because Joe Gomez is there, the high line works because Joe Gomez is very fast and athletic, even if he's not quite the same standard as Van Dijk in terms of a defender. But once Joe Gomez goes again, the wheels start to wobble. But it didn't really collapse completely then because... There was still Fabinho, there was still Matip. So is it really a case of resilience, 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 but then it can only go so far? And when, what point do you think has really been the tipping point? Because Liverpool were doing quite well, even without Van Dijk and even without Gomez to a point. But was there a moment for you where it just simply became too much to hold hold in that centre-back position? I think it's really hard to be honest to, to pinpoint a specific moment. I mean, you can ter- sort of turn at the turn of the year that the results have obviously dropped off a cliff up until that point, they'd been okay. So I think it's probably easy to sort of go, well, it must have been about that time. But I think it is, as you say, just it's that collective of you have one out and then a couple of weeks later, Joe Gomez is out for the season. Then a couple of weeks later, you think, well, Matt, it, we can probably only play him for 50% of the games anyway because mm-hmm. of his fitness. But even 50%, you'd, you'd have took that now he's out for the, the entire season. It's it's just one of those where it, it's sort of built up and built up. And I think slowly but surely, Liverpool's confidence has started to erode. They maybe have started to, to do things slightly differently. They've maybe started to doubt themselves a little bit. I think it's it's really hard to sort of pinpoint exactly one moment where, you know, it, it, it's one player was was just that one injury too many. But I think I saw something earlier where Manchester City last season, it, it, it was pretty much sort of said that, you know, mm. the, the reason they couldn't win the Premier League last season, they couldn't cope really was because they had a few injuries. They had, Amrit Laporte was out for a long time, but the maximum number of injuries I think that they had on, on one occasion for a match was six players who were missing. Liverpool consistently this season have had at least eight, nine, ten players missing and not just for a one-off game, but for, for a period of a couple of months now. So, yeah, it, it's an unprecedented sort of circumstance to, to be able to deal with those injuries. And I just think, it you is, know, for, for any team would, you know, any team, yeah. if you took out all of those players, it, they'd really, really struggle. 
it's just the concentration of centre backs, isn't it? As well, it's it's pretty amazing, really. I, I think it was almost when when Matic went. I think that was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, and the point that people started to say, right, we really need to get a centre back in uh, in January. And obviously, you got into. I feel for Kabak, you know, because I think there's there is potentially a player there. Uh, he's obviously someone that was linked in the past, but he's really struggled because I think more than anything, he's been playing with Jordan Henderson. He's been playing with. Uh, was it Williams and, and, and Phillips? And it's just, they're not maybe the calibre to really to, to see how good Kabak could be. Uh, so, yeah, I really feel for him, actually, since he's come in. Yeah, I, I'm in total agreement. I, to be honest, I can't believe that they left it until the last day of the transfer window to get those two players in. Because mm. if you'd have had Ozan Kabak in the team from the 1st of January, then, you know, he, he could have made those mistakes. He could have adapted to, to the... The, the team obviously it would have been no easier for the first couple of games but you hope you know he'd be able to, to sort of adapt to that so that's the surprise for me and that that to be honest says to me that they weren't particularly convinced on on either of those players they weren't the yeah. ones that they wanted they've just been forced into doing it I think the fact that it's only a loan deal with an option to buy they initially were told no you can only have him if if it's an obligation to yeah. buy but realistically no, he's done very well with that deal actually hasn't he yeah so never really never really going to happen in, in that sense so yeah it's it's one of those I don't think I mean Ben Davis hasn't even hasn't even had a chance yet which when you think Nat Phillips came on over the weekend doesn't say much for, for what they think of, of him at this moment in time but yeah it's uh, it's a, a very difficult situation yeah I mean it, and, and we sort of you, you've touched on it there and we, we sort of keep going back to that springboard and, and almost a butterfly effect of of one injury having several repercussions across the team. To what extent has the injuries behind, like we say, had, had an effect on the performances and, and the contributions of maybe Sadio Mane and, and Roberto Firmino? Is that simply a case of the people behind them have ruined the structure and that's kind of affected their performance? Or is that a little bit different because Diogo Jota came in and he did really well when he was um, put into the team? Is it almost a case of things becoming a little bit stale in attack as opposed to as opposed to it being related to injuries further back? I think with Roberto Firmino, it's slightly more easy to, to understand. I think even last season, Roberto Firmino wasn't really at his best. I think for, mm. for 18 months now, I've sort of been thinking, is it time to, to bring somebody else in? Is it time to, to maybe try and, and get that next evolution? And I think you know, that is what Diogo Jota was, was there for. Obviously, he's now been injured for the past sort of 10 weeks or, or so. So he's not really been able to, to provide that. But before that, mm -hmm. I think he'd scored nine in, in 17 or something like that. So he'd obviously sort of started to, to become, I think, the, the first choice option. And I think if he'd have stayed fit, you then are able to, to give Roberto Firmino a bit of a rest. You could play him as mm -hmm. a number 10, take the goal scoring pressure off him, move Mohamed Salah into that number nine position and sort of rotate them a little bit more. But since Diogo Jota got injured, I think he's played in every single game that, that Liverpool have played. I think three of those times he's come off the bench, the other 14, he's just been having to start, even though he's not been in the best of form, he's not been scoring, he's looked a little bit tired. There's just not really any other option for, for Liverpool to put in there. So I think Firmino is, is sort of understandable, explainable. Sadio Mane is a little bit more of a concern for me, I think. That's the surprise one. That's the one that at the start of this season, if you'd have said Sadio Mane would be you know, going... I think it was 10 or 11 games before he, he scored against Crystal Palace um, without a, a goal in that period. He's not really looked particularly brilliant over the last few weeks. That's the, the sort of worry for me. Mm. I think Mohamed Salah now has already got more goals than what he got last season. He's mm. scoring pretty much at the same level that he was in his first season when he ends up with, with 44 goals. So he's absolutely fine. He's absolutely brilliant. He'll go on and, and score plenty more goals before the end of the season. But... Mm. I think Sadio Mane is also has almost sort of been able to, to hide in the fact that Mohamed Salah has been so good and so consistent. Nobody's really noticed quite how bad his goal scoring has been this season. I think he's mm. only got sort of five or six in the Premier League, which for somebody of his quality in a team that, that creates chances, I know they haven't been doing so as freely in the last few weeks, but you know, mm. somebody of his quality for, for a team like Liverpool should be probably scoring a few more. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of summarise that whole sort of segment, really, in terms of injuries, it feels like while obviously the injuries, particularly in defence, have disrupted the 
effectiveness of the system because it's pulled players out of preferred positions and it's put players into positions who simply aren't really good enough to be in those positions when you consider the people that they're replacing. But also, again, in, in, those, in that attacking trio, the lack, particularly the injury to Jota, has meant that even when the players haven't been performing to the same standard, maybe through fatigue, tiredness, or just or just going through the motions in some capacity, there hasn't been that replacement to come in of a similar level um, and and challenge them for that starting berth. So I think it's it's fair to say Liverpool have been really really hard done by by injuries this season. So much so that not even the most ardent of Everton fan could argue otherwise. But <laughs> on the um, I should add Manchester United fan to that as well. Just 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 to uh, not specifically target you there, Jordan. But now moving on to sort of topic. Two and again sticking with Liverpool um, as Matt is here and, and, and can give insight with that. Um, how should Liverpool then be looking to move forward? And this is a two pronged question really because there's a short term movement of going forward in terms of how should they be looking to finish the season, and then the long term, what should they be looking to do in the next in the upcoming season or upcoming two seasons? I suppose Jordan, will, you've been quietly sitting there smiling, um, so I'll throw that. I mean, I'll throw that to you because you've put a suggestion in, in, in the notes, actually, that of certainly from a long term perspective, maybe Mohamed Salah um, or Sadio Mane would have to be sacrificed to fund um, a transfer re- revolution of some kind. What, well, what, what I mean, makes you think I, For me, I mean, Matt's kind of alluded to it already. For me, you know, his form has been questionable for a long time now. Uh, I think the number of goals in particular, he's maybe not your classic number nine, which is obviously a, a big explanation for that. But that is one thing that I would be looking at is a number nine, a real number nine to come in. And and even even if it's just kind of a plan B, obviously Jot has been a really good signing. I think I, I really like that signing. Um, and, and he's done a good job. He can play as a nine, but he's not a, a true number nine. Uh, so that would be one thing that I, I would do. And then, it was more one to ask Matt really is, is do you think that what of Mane or Salah might have to go uh, in order to kind of just breathe new life into the team, into the attack in particular? I think it's really difficult to be honest. I mean, it, it's something that we've sort of spoken about with Felipe Coutinho was obviously sold and, and that funded the moves for, for Van Dijk and Alisson. And obviously we all know how sort of transformational they've been. I think at, at this point when Liverpool you know don't have injuries, they're still... You know the the top two teams in the country, one of the best teams in Europe, with the likes of Bayern Munich. So the the sort of argument that that you would have is, should a team of that standard have to sell one of their players to to get somebody else in? I don't think necessarily they should. I think this summer it would be very difficult to to sell one of those two anyway, because you think of the the places that they would ordinarily go. You'd probably think of, of Real Madrid or Barcelona potentially being interested in in Sadio Mane. We know Zinedine Zidane's a big big fan of both Mane and Salah, for example, but I'm not convinced that, that either of those two Spanish teams could afford to, to sign them this summer anyway. I think Except if Real Madrid, <laughs> especially Barca, I mean, they can barely afford Gini Wijnaldum on a free transfer, <laughs> can't they? So, I mean, if Real Madrid do have money to, to make a big signing, I think it's it's probably Kylian Mbappe rather than than one of those two. So, I think it's, it's almost impossible to, to see a situation where that happens, to be honest. I mean, for me, it's not a case of, of moving one of those on. I think there's going to be enough movement with Divock Origi probably leaving. Certain Shakiri almost certainly will leave Liverpool this summer. He would have done last year if they'd have had a, a proper offer on the table for him. I think Harvey Elliott is is the obvious replacement for, for one yeah. of those two. But then I think you need one more. I think you need the, the Salah, Mane and Firmino trio plus Jota and, and Harvey Elliott and probably one more as well. So for me, I'd be looking to to add one rather than to to replace one. No, yeah. I, I agree, and, and I actually I agree with your point that I mean Barcelona. I, as you say, I don't think they're going to be buying anyone big, uh, and I also think Mbappe probably is the the man for Real Madrid. Maybe PSG if they're looking for that Mbappe replacement. Uh, but yeah, I, no, it's it's maybe something to look at though. Is is the rages as well? Uh, to Liverpool maybe need to start again. Well, not start again from scratch, but just kind of breathe, as I say, breathe new life into the team. Uh, particularly well, as well with Van Dijk when he comes back. He, I think he's going to be 30, isn't he, when by the time he's fit again? 
Yeah, 30 in the summer, I think. So, yeah. That's... I thought you said Thursday. Um, I think yeah, he's coming yeah, back so going to be Thursday. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought my, I, I'm very tired. Um, no, I think it was... I, I mean, my argument to that would be, though, Van Dyke's been out for a long time. Joe Gomez has been out for a long time. Though Gomez does have a tendency for more, um, uh, more of a history with injuries, I would say. But a resurgent Van Dyke, someone, you know, he, before this long-term injury... He hadn't traditionally been suffering from injuries over, over over his career. So I wouldn't, I don't think I necessarily worry too much. He's got a very good mentality. He's a bit of a warrior, isn't he? So I always think him coming back next season will be like a new signing in itself. Oh, I knew you and were going to say it. No, but it's true, isn't it? But it's it. true, isn't it? I mean, it's going to give that impetus and the, def- and the whole team can look behind and think, oh, we've got our guy back. We've got our main centre-back back. I uh, said that twice. And then that's just going to give, I, I just think that will breathe a sense of new life into the whole team. And hey, you think I'm saying that. I imagine FSG might be saying something similar, given <laughs> that they like to keep their um, their money in um, in their pockets sometimes. But um, no, I mean, what do, you th- what do you think about that, Matt? Do you think that the return of Van Dyke will give that? Bit? I mean, you've already said first eleven. Is as is top two in the Premier League, probably as, as good as Manchester City still, really, you'd argue. Um, as 11. I yeah. But when you when you compare when you when you say that, that makes it very difficult to go out and recruit players. Who, you know, who do you who do you get, especially without spending big money? If you sign a player for 35 or 40 million pounds, the reality is that they might be on the bench for a considerable amount of time. And that's a tough person to bring in because. They're having to compromise their playing um, minutes, uh, knowing knowing full well that the, the first eleven is a really tough eleven to break into. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's why for for me we we spoke about the the refreshing of of the attackers earlier on. I think Liverpool have to somehow find another version of Diogo Jota in a, a player that is taking a, a step up. He's happy to to come in and, and maybe be on the bench to begin with, mm. but he backs himself to to be a player that can take that next step at, at Liverpool. There's mm. been lots of, of sort of speculation of a, an Mbappe or a Holland or, or someone like that, but that's not really you know what mm. Liverpool do. Is it? It's it's more a case of, of spending 30, 35 million on those sorts of players. Forty one, I think it was on, on Jota. Mm. If there's another one of those that that they can unearth and, and add in gradually, I think it sort of solves two problems in one. It gives you a little bit of extra depth next season in the attack, but it's also somebody who you know, maybe the season after that, maybe if, if Firmino moves on at, at that point, maybe Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane might move yeah. on. You've sort of got somebody ready-made, ready to, to step into those shoes. And it, it's very, very difficult, as you say, for, for Liverpool to get a centre-back in because Van Dijk's injury record is impeccable mm. until, until yeah. this one. He, he doesn't really miss a game. I think he's you know, even played in, in Carabao Cup games and stuff like that earlier mm. this season, which you know ordinarily you wouldn't take that risk. But Liverpool mm. really were, were fairly confident that he'd be able to get through it. Didn't really have any other options as well. So I think that's the, the difficult one. I think Ozan Kabak is, is one to keep an eye on. If he mm. can get to the end of this season look like he can be decent enough to be a third or fourth choice. That's sort of your answer. 18 million, not too bad. He's already had six months at the mm. club. He knows you know, exactly where his position is. He could be the answer for that. And I think that is, that's what Liverpool have to hope, I think. I think th- there's a good number of players who will miss the rest of this season and come back, as you say, almost like new signings, as mm. much as we hate that phrase. But there's got to be a... <laughs> There's got to be two or three signings, actual signings, on top of yeah. that. I do. I think Kabak will benefit actually uh, by almost being being the guy at the back for the rest of the season, and it's it's the same way as people say like the lead centre backs will benefit more than say if you play for Burnley uh, because it's just the, the, if you play a high line, you're getting used more, you're getting utilised more. Johnny's looking at me because I've I've disgraced his beloved Burnley, but. It's true, isn't it? If you're playing a high line, you're getting tested more and it's more beneficial for your playing ability, I would say. No, I think that you think you're right. I'm, I was, <laughs> you know, just, just looking um, just looking at you. That we're, we're, on, we're, we're recording this on Zoom. What else am I supposed to do? Look at the ceiling? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think um, I, think, I think you both make a good point, actually. Uh, some good points there, particularly on, on Kabak. Coming for, like, more, more, I think, he, he suffered with the lack of continuity around him as opposed to 
his own individual performance as being bad. And the second part of the question, which probably should, probably should have done this in reverse, but to go to the short-term um, need at the moment, I mean, I think me and you have both said this, Jordan, actually, when we do see Liverpool continually playing with a high line, despite having players in that high line who maybe aren't best suited to, to it at centre-back because they're not fast enough or maybe not convincing enough defensively, then it looks like Liverpool are hanging themselves out to dry at times a little bit. And with the Champions League on the line, is there good reason to be asking Jurgen Klopp to maybe compromise his tactics a little bit for the end of the season? And just before you answer that, Matt, I reference and look to Brendan Rodgers, who at Leicester had a ridiculous injury list at the start of the season. I know James Madison, some of his centre-backs were injured, Ricardo Pereira was out. Um, and yeah, it, it just looked quite bleak for them on, on an injury front. And he abandoned his usual 4-2-3-1 possession philosophy for a more counter-attacking five-at-the-back um, formation. And they did wonderfully well with that and waited until James Madison came back and the injuries recovered. And now they've gone back to a more 4-2-3-1-based system. So he showed that tactical fluidity and it re rewards for him because they couldn't have played in the same way without the players that they were missing. Is that something Jurgen Klopp should look to do with Liverpool, given the precarious nature of their position in the league at the moment? I can certainly see the argument for it. I think in the Champions League, it's not so much of an issue. I think we saw with RB Leipzig that those sorts of better teams are probably going to sort of come out and attack and play into Liverpool's hands a little bit and back themselves to, to be better. It's more in the Premier League that, that it's a worry. I think... I saw Gary Neville yesterday suggest that, that maybe Liverpool should do something like you say, go maybe three at the back. But, I mean, do Liverpool have three centre-backs? I'm not sure they do. I'd be tempted to go one at the back, maybe. But yeah. Uh, yeah. It, It's difficult, I think, to, to sort of change things up. I think the way that I would change things up is to go more of a 4-2-3-1 and, and go with Jota in there as well. I think Diogo Jota is is the key, really, for me, for, for Liverpool to, to catch up with these teams. But I'd be... I'd be hesitant to, to go and, and move the line back and, and sort of play a little bit more safely because I know it's not working at, at this moment in time, but teams turn up at an Anfield or play Liverpool, wherever it is, they give Liverpool the ball, they put the emphasis on them. I'm not sure it's more a case of Liverpool having to, to attack better, to be honest, rather than, than defend better. I know, obviously, there's the argument of the counter-attack and, and we saw that. We've seen that plenty of times. We've even seen you know, teams like Burnley and, and Brighton sort of do that successfully against Liverpool, which ordinarily you wouldn't think would be the case. But for me, it's more a case of, of being able to control things and, and be able to play in a, a system that suits them. I think if you, at this point in the season, started to, to change and go three at the back and, and maybe bring Ben Davis in and, and maybe have him alongside a couple of midfielders in, in your back line, I think it sort of takes away from, from what Liverpool are about. And I know it's a, it's a hypothetical question, but I think it will stay as a, a hypothetical because I just think Jurgen Klopp is, is very, very stubborn in the way that, that he goes about I things. <laughs> I can't see Klopp changing the way he's going to play, to be honest. No, no, no. It, it's, it's usually been tradition. I mean, there has been a few instances, I think, of 4-1-2-1-2 uh, or 4 4 2 diamonds, 4-2-3-1 um, as well. But traditionally, largely, Jurgen Klopp with Liverpool has been a 4-3-3. And obviously, it, as Matt said, it's unlikely. But Jordan, your thoughts briefly on that? What do you do? No, I, I agree with what Matt said. I think, uh, and as we've said all along, I think the injury crisis has been such a massive thing to the season. And it's quite... Obviously, we, we, de we deal with the, the here and now, so that's what we, we're looking at. But I think they'll be all right at the end of, by the end of the season, once they start getting players back, which I hate to say and I hate to see, but I think it'll be the case. Mm. Do, as, we've, as we've also said, I think they do have the second best, at least starting 11 in the league. So Yeah, yeah. so briefly, actually, from both of you then, by, by continuing and persisting with the high line, the 4-3-3, predominantly 4-3-3, and the usual Jurgen Klopp tactics, is will that be enough? to get Liverpool Champions League football at the end of the season? I think, to be honest, it's between Liverpool and Chelsea. I think it's 50-50 mm. between the two of those in the league. They obviously play each other at Anfield in just over a week, so that, I think, is going to be absolutely massive. I would be tempted to go with Liverpool, depending on players coming back, but it's it's one of those. We don't know at, the, at this stage the extent of Jordan Henderson's injury. We don't know mm. whether Fabinho will be back. It's all these 
ifs and, and buts, isn't it? So I'd be backing Liverpool. I think they also have a, a chance of winning the Champions League, actually. I can see a, a scenario where they win the Champions League and maybe come fifth or sixth. It, it, it's not, you know, the, the strangest thing that, mm. that you would have ever seen, but... It'd be very evident for Everton to finish fourth and then Liverpool win the Champions League is one thing that, I mean, I seem to recall it happening in the past. No, no, so. but Jordan, Jordan, I'm pretty sure you could still have five Champions League. You could have five Champions League teams now. Yeah, so it won't, yeah, I think you can. The team yeah. in four would then have to play the qualifying game, which... Is it doesn't matter, does it? Still, you'd still take that, wouldn't you, at the, <laughs> in your position, I would imagine. But yeah, so just briefly, Jordan, is that top four Liverpool or, or no? Oh, I'm going to say... I think it'll be close, which is exciting, you know. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw, go against Mark. I'm gonna say they won't. Okay. Is, That's well, who, who will it? Who will instead? Everton. No, don't come on, be honest. Be serious. <laughs> be serious. No, I think, I think, obviously, I think City have won the league. I think Leicester will continue it. I think United will continue it. And it's that last spot, isn't it? As Matt said, I think Chelsea will be up there. Liverpool will be up there. I think even Spurs will be up there. Well, I think Everton might be. We'll see. At, oh, it's really tough. You picked about Chelsea. twelve teams. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, that's wonderful. Um, I got there in the end. Different topic <laughs> now. We've done a lot on Liverpool there, and uh, we're going on to going on to a team really that we've not covered. Uh, me and Jordan haven't even spoken about in the past five episodes, or well, since we've started this this new season of podcasts, and that's Arsenal. And in many ways, Jordan, you'd probably say that Arsenal fans, in a way, are quite happy that they're not being talked about because the last time they were being talked about quite a lot, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't for necessarily good reasons. It was a relegation, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we have actually spoken about that very briefly, maybe in jest more than anything, about mm. them potentially going down. But mm. yeah, no, I, th- I think they've, they've come back into some decent form. But mm. I think the reason we've not spoken about them is they're just really boring to watch. Do you think uh, mid table? It's just, it's just not a good time to be an Arsenal fan, really, is it? Well, right I, 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 I'll take that back a bit. Actually, I mean, you say really boring to watch, but I, I'm pretty, you know, whenever I watch them, I do, do sometimes see levels where you can see the fragments of the passages of play that they work on in training, the, the gives and goes, the players running in behind. I mean, I think Kieran Tierney makes a massive difference actually when he plays for Arsenal. Yeah, I agree with that. Width on the side. When Cedric plays there, you play with a right footer on the left, and it and it does and it does seem to affect uh, the the expansivity of their of their of their football. Um, but I think that's a little harsh, given that if you look at what they've done over um, since Boxing Day when they beat Chelsea three one, they've built a steady succession of results. I think, and a lot of teams would bite their hand off to be to have the form that they've been in. I know they've they lost to Wolves and they lost to Villa. They've lost the occasional game here and there. But by and large, they've kept a lot of clean sheets. They've won quite a lot of games and they've got a lot of young players like Bukayo Saka, um, Smith Rowe, Odegaard's come in now as well. Pepe's still quite young, of course, as well. Um, they've got a very uh, promising array of young players and they aren't in horrendous form like they were at Christmas. So... I mean, from your point of view, Matt, are you slightly jealous with Arsenal's form this year, given Liverpool's current predicament? You'd take some of their results? Yeah, of course you would. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was jealous. I think they're, they're only yeah. six points behind Liverpool now, quietly That's mad, isn't catching, it? catching them off. I mean, it, it, it's one of those, isn't it? I think Mikel Arteta has got a huge job on his hands. Yeah. I think the quality of the players determines, you know, how good a manager you are almost. I think, you know, yeah. if you put Mikel Arteta in charge of maybe one or two other teams in the league, we'd probably have a slightly different perception of him. I think they're pretty much playing the way that Manchester City played, which is no massive coincidence given Mikel Arteta was a huge sort of influence as well as Pep Guardiola, but they just don't have the same level of players, do they? I mean, they've got one or two individuals who you think mm. could do something, Aubameyang, the obvious one, but He's, again, not had the, mm. the best of seasons. I just think if they came sort of ninth or tenth in the Premier League this season, which I think they probably will, I think that's mm. that's probably about right for, for the standard yeah. of, of squad that they've got. Mm. And, I mean, yeah. One thing that we've said in the, in a past pod was that Spurs were, were maybe a team that were underperforming massively, but their team just isn't that maybe that good to where they should be. Because uh, a lot of fans, obviously, they kind of see the big six. They should be in the top six, fighting for Champions League, and that's Arsenal. 
because uh, I mean, under Wenger, they got Champions League every single season, didn't they? So it's kind of become ingrained in our minds that oh, Arsenal, they should be a Champions League team. But their their squad, just, as, as you've said, it's just not that good. I think the, there's a lot of players in that team that long term they need to be looking to get rid of. A lot of dead wood. I look at the centre backs that started against City. I don't think either of them are going to be good enough long term. Uh, especially Rob Holding. I think Gabriel was a good signing in summer. I think he's done okay. Uh, there was obviously Saliba as well. We're not certain exactly what happened there. I think he could have been and potentially could still be a good player for Arsenal. Uh, but yeah, as I said, I just don't think this, as you said as well, I just don't think the squad's good enough. I think that, as you said as well, eighth, ninth, that's where they should be as a team. And I think Arteta's done a, a decent job. Mm. Well, we touched, I mean, before before uh, your prominence on this podcast, Jordan, we did a few discussions about um, whether Lampard or Solskjaer or Arteta, uh, which, which one of those three would be the best and which one would turn out to be second and third and so on. And we all, well, myself and James at the time when we did that poll thought that Arteta would turn out to be the best of the three. Part generally because of his almost apprenticeship under one of the best managers in the world. So yeah. he's, he's, te- he's te- that, that helps. Um, but also I think he has quite, he has a quite a strong personality, doesn't he? Um, Arteta, he gives across a winning vibe. He can be quite brutal, but not too brutal. Never looks like he's losing the plot. Even when they were losing a lot of games in December, you never got the sense that he was going crazy which you do get the sense with some managers that they just, they've just they lost control of everything. I know there were some reports that were saying that he'd lost the dressing room, this, that and the other, which seems to happen every time a manager loses about four games. That customer report comes out. Um, but, I mean, you've both touched on it, really, but Matt, how impressed... You, you've basically said Arsenal aren't a team that's going to do particularly well. So... Given Mikel Arteta's inexperience, how impressed are you with the way he's dealt with Arsenal's crisis or the crisis that he took charge of? I think he's done really well. I think, to be honest, one of the things that's really helped Arsenal, and they're not the only team, is the fact that there's no fans inside the stadium this mm. season. I think mm. you could probably put Everton in a similar bracket. I think yeah. one or two other teams as well. They're able to play in a way which they just would not be allowed to do. I know the Emirates mm. is not exactly the most vocal. It's not <laughs> typically, you know, an environment which sort of thrives in, in maybe one or two other stadiums, Liverpool probably included, who rely mm. on their fans for, for the sort of energy. But I think Mikel Arteta has done really, really well. But I think we have to, to wait and sort of judge him once fans are back in the stadium because would fans sort of let them be quite as passive and, and quite as methodical? I, I wonder whether that is the case long-term, whether they would accept that at Arsenal. They're, they're sort of, they're in a position now where they kind of have to, because as we've said, they're not really that great individually. They have to play in this way because this is effectively the only way that Mikel Arteta can, can get the best out of his players. But I think, I think I'll reserve judgment on, on the long-term sort of project mm. at, at Arsenal until they've got fans back in the stadium. Give them maybe one or two more transfer windows as well to, to add a bit more quality. And I think then we'll sort of see whether Mikel Arteta really is a, at the top level of management that potentially he could be. Yeah, I think he's definitely shown the promise as well. Uh, obviously, we've kind of said about how Pep Guardiola, he's been under his tutelage and stuff like that. I, I think he's... he's got the potential almost to be a top manager and the way they've been playing is maybe uh, because of this, the squad he's got, maybe Arteta just doesn't really rate his players that much and it's mm. forcing them to play in that kind of, I've, I've called it boring manner, uh, but they've been defensively solid. They've conceded the, the third fewest goals in the league and I, I think that's, as I say, I think that's just because of the, the players they've got. It's just the way he's, maybe setting them out to play because he doesn't think they can do much more. Mm. I did find it find it interesting over the weekend that they obviously played Manchester City and it, it finishes 1-0. There was kind of a narrative that they'd kept at 1-0, they'd kept themselves yeah, in it, they defended <laughs> really well. It, for me, it's the other way around. Manchester City, if they needed to go up another gear, they yeah. probably had six or yeah. seven that they could have well, I think done, they but... could have, Sterling could have had a hat-trick in the first 10 minutes, couldn't he? It was... Yeah, yeah. 
yeah I think yeah it, you know, no no you, you you're both right there in terms of in terms of that I mean Manchester City are the phenomenal team this season it must be said but um I think when we look at what Arteta's done so far in particular it's, I think it's while he tries to implement a style on the field you you know you might call it quite passive or boring and, and but you have alluded to the fact that that's probably also down to the limitations he has with the personnel available but what he has done particularly well I think is, is maybe off the field matters in the way that um he's managed to keep sort of he's managed to like for example with with players that aren't involved entirely within his plans Mesut Ozil for example he stayed true to that because even when they were going through a rough patch and there were many clambers for Ozil to come back in, he never did bring Ozil back and he went for Emil Smith-Rowe. He never looked for that um, option. And again, with, with other players like Kalasinac, he's slowly been pushed to the wayside. Kalasinac has now, now got another player on big wages and someone that they really need to get off the books. Uh, he's gone to back Schalke, I think. So it's been, yeah... I mean, from that point of view, would you say that he's done well to try and cut the squad down to what he thinks can he can go forward with before he invests um, in more talent? Yeah, I think so. I think he was handed a, a pretty difficult job in that regard, to yeah. be honest. Mesut Ozil is a huge, obviously, earner at Arsenal. He's limited the the signings that they've been able to make to get him off their books. I mean, is is a huge thing in itself. I think mm. there's obviously other examples, but yeah. he is the, the biggest one to, to get rid of. And it wasn't just the, the wages, it was the impact on the dressing room was supposedly not particularly great. It, it, it doesn't sort of help you when you go into a job like that, when you're new, when you're trying to prove yourself as a, a manager to be able to to work with the players and, and do everything that you want, implement all the, the, the mm. things that you want to implement to have those sort of difficult characters potentially inside the dressing room is, is never going to be the most useful thing. So to get rid of those, I think was, was a big positive for Arsenal. The, the difference now that they've got to, to do is to, well, first of all, to, to get rid of Ozil permanently. I think he's only on loan, isn't he, for mm. now? Or did he mm. go permanently mm. in the end? I'm not sure. Um, but it's, it's then to, to replace those players and, and bring in somebody of similar quality, but, somebody who, who fits the way that they play and is able to, to play in a, a similar sort of way to, to what Mikel Arteta wants. So that's the the next step. I think it, it's been a positive start in terms of, of getting rid of those players, but the next difficult thing is probably outside of, of both the Champions League and the Europa League next season. That can help them mm. in one sense mm. in that they'll have longer between matches, but it probably won't help them in terms of, of bringing in players during the summer. Yeah, I think Messer. I think he did go to Fenerbahce permanently, but um, again, it, it, it was it was. Hmm? And they paid out his contract. Oh uh, yeah, no, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did pay out his contract. I think they got some fan assistance for that as well, Fenerbahce. So it was <laughs> partially fan funded, um, which is quite remarkable. But um, yeah, I mean, from that point of view, then we, we we've talked about we, we we sort of talked about the promising things here and there, but. Again, with this Arsenal board and the, with this transfer setup, it's not something that screams. I suppose when you look at Frank Lampard and Chelsea, but they went quite the other way with two hundred million plus spend in the summer. You're not going to get that from the Arsenal board. If anything, they'll be looking to get anything close to a hundred, really. So, what would you be looking at specifically, given the transfer limitations uh, with the Arsenal team at the moment? Where do you think Jordan they probably should look to invest in? As I said, I don't think I don't think the squad is that good. I think mm. if Saliba isn't going to come back and isn't going to be successful, clearly there's something gone wrong between him and Arteta. Mm. I'd look at a centre back and obviously try and get some money back from him. Uh, I think in midfield, Xhaka and Party. If you can keep Party fit, that's a really solid midfield. I think that's good mm. enough to to challenge at least for Europe. Uh, and then. Attacking-wise, I think Saka is an absolute gem. I think he's someone that they can build the team around for the future and, and should build the team around for the future because he really is that good. Mm. Uh, Smith-Rowe, maybe not quite that calibre, but a good squad player. I, I think they're going to have to make a big decision on both Lacazette and Aubameyang as to whether they're getting the output that they need to get from the money they're well, putting in. They've already made a big decision on Aubameyang, so I don't think you can really say, oh... Bye-bye. You know, you're on £350,000 a week. Um, well, yeah, I mean, no one's going to pay him that from this no, point. But no, 
I think it's I think it's quite sad actually with Arteta and and, and almost testament again to to his to his man management capabilities is that the trusted um tried and trusted likes of Aubameyang, Willian, the experienced players who you'd expect to to really lift the team and push them forward have massively let him down. And rather than fall on his sword completely by persisting, particularly with Willian week in, week out, he's yeah. put through young players, he's promoted young players, and, and it was inevitably the young players that got him out of the hole that they were they were stuck in around the Christmas period. So in that respect, I think he deserves um, credit for going in that direction, because I don't think everyone would. Some might argue that he was left with little choice, given that uh, probably two or three poor results maybe away from getting the sack but it's nonetheless I think he still deserves the credit for trusting in the youngsters um at his time of need yeah I think so I think they can take you a certain degree to the way that, mm. that you want to be in the, the way that you've got to play but I think mm. to get to the next level I think Bukayo Saka is brilliant as Jordan mm. says he's the the sort of standout one he's fine it's more the others that you'd worry are they quite at the level to take you you know, from a, a mid-table team into, say, the Europa League to begin with, I'm I'm not quite convinced on on Emil Smith Rowe yet. I think there's been, I mean, Martin Tyler, how many times did he describe him as the the Croydon De Bruyne yesterday? <laughs> yeah. At least fifteen. Um, yeah. I, I just I don't think that's helpful to to anyone. To to be yeah. honest with you, I think. <laughs> you compare well, I've to, actually put on the notes as well how it's, it reminds me a bit of Tom Davies at Everton, in that he's been kind of thrust into the deep end. Where, where fans are going to be expecting a lot of him because he's been playing every week and kind of building up this this idea that he's always oh, really great and it can it, I think it could affect him long term negatively because I mean as I say we saw it with Tom Davies where fans started to turn on him and say oh he's not good enough he's never going to be good enough you uh, and it's taken him until now really to to make a name for himself and, and get back into the team. And I think that, that's something that will happen with Smith Rowe if, if they do keep playing him every week. Well, I, th- I think the emphasis on youngsters and the, and the, and the even you know, Arteta himself being a very young, inexperienced coach, all points to the fact that Arsenal are somewhat in this for the long term. And even though it might not be music to the ears of the fans, um, quite clearly the plan, I suppose, is over four or five years as opposed to you know, one, two years into where they're going to go into Europe. And Arteta's singing uh, on the right on the right hymn sheets, I think, so far, but there's still a lot to prove uh, and there's still a lot to do and there's still a long way from anything. But I would say, if I was an Arsenal fan or even just, just two Arsenal fans, I think it's a project worth sticking by. Um, yeah, because Arteta's only going to get better as a manager, you'd assume, with every day that he, he has in management. And some of those players, like Saka, like we've touched on, are only going to get better with the more games that they play as well. So I think it's there is there is some room for optimism, but cautious optimism, I think, yeah. uh, at the end. They might have to maybe prepare themselves for not being in Europe for the next season or two as well. I think they're already prepared, to be honest, unless yeah. they win the Europa League, in which case it's possible. Possible that they could. It's a knockout. There's, knockout there's the, the third tier European competition oh, coming in at some coming, point. Yeah, 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 I suppose so. It's next season, actually, isn't it? Is it yeah. <laughs> so if you finish what eighth is that? You'll you'll be in that. So yeah. And also the Champions Cup in the Champions Cup isn't there in the uh, just before the season starts? That's always an interesting one. Usually held in America, isn't it? But uh, that's that's not quite as exciting. I don't think uh, in terms of a European <laughs> tournament played overseas. But you talked actually moves on nicely to topic four, which is a, a more of a broad look across Europe. It's a huge game, which I happen to watch um, this weekend. Not, And I happen to watch the Milan derby for two reasons. One, Antonio Conte is one of my favourite coaches. And two, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is one of my favourite football players. So it, it was it was a tough one for me to watch because I didn't really know which way to go with that one. Uh, I have Ibrahimovic's autobiography. I don't have Antonio Conte's. So maybe I was pushing for a red Milan win. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, Inter were absolutely... Well, they were brilliant. Um, 3-0 win, really dominant uh, for most of the game. And I remember listening to the commentators and they were saying something along the lines of, you know, if you go, if you go one or two nil down to any manager, a team of any manager across Europe, you don't want it to be Antonio Conte's because he gets his team defensively disciplined. And, and we saw at Chelsea actually when they were good, 
they could hold a lead and they could spring a counter-attack so brilliantly, uh, particularly in that 16-17 title winning season. And yeah, they were they were excellent uh, against against uh, AC Milan, who looked quite tired. And we've touched on we you, you touched a little bit on it with Arsenal and possibly uh, not having European football to contend with next year might benefit them. Well, Inter are now out of uh, European um, competitions, and particularly with Antonio Conte, manager who likes to work his players into the ground when they play two three times a week. Sometimes the players look absolutely exhausted by the end of that week. And now without that game in the middle of the week, it looks like it could be the push that they need to get them to the to the Serie A title, Jordan. Yeah, well, Conte's always been a manager, hasn't he, that's been maybe more focused on the league. He's always excelled in the league as well, at every club he's been at. It's because um, he doesn't get to the latter stages of the Euro- well, European exactly, competitions. Yeah, exactly. But maybe, you never know, maybe that's all, all part of the master plan. And I think Inter... Having not won the the Serie A for so long, I think it's yeah. something that their fans will be really craving. It's a shame we didn't get to see fans in the San Siro, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, for the last few weeks we've we've spoken a little bit about Serie A the last couple of months at least, yeah. anyway. Uh, and I've always said that I wanted Inter to win, so I'm kind of glad yeah. to see that they're currently on top, and I think they'll continue it. Matt, what do you think of Antonio Conte as a manager? Is he an elite manager? Is he is he underappreciated in the world of football, which is so dominated by wanting to play out from the back in a in a sexy kind of way? I like him. I do like him. Um, I think you you have to sort of assess the elite level managers in European football, though. The fact that Inter are not going to be you know even contenders for the Champions League, they're not in the the knockout stages. Is I think probably just just stopping him from being an, an absolute elite manager um i think obviously if they they win the title over in italy which it looks like they they probably will do at this point i think they're, they're five points clear of juventus which is probably the team that you would expect to, to challenge them mm-hmm. the, the most i mean he is a good manager but for me the the mark of of any team and, and of any uh, sort of manager player individual um Anywhere across football, you have to, to be in the latter stages of, of the Champions League. I think I've been having the, the same discussion with a few colleagues and, and stuff today of Manchester City, you know, to, to sort of bring it back to, to English football. Do, do they have to, to win the Champions League to, to be regarded as, you know, one of the, the teams of their generation? Does Pep Guardiola have to, to win it with them to be a success? I think he does. So I would probably apply the, the same criteria, to be honest, to... to to Italian football, I know it's 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 difficult for, for Conte to, to go and, and win the league and be in the, the latter mm. stages of the Champions League. But for me, it doesn't have to be this season, of course. It's not stopping him from becoming an elite manager. But at this moment in time, I think you can't really compare him to, to say, a Klopp or a Guardiola or, or, mm. or people like that just because he's not in the competition that, that everybody wants to win. Mm. And just as we we record this, actually, Juventus on course for a victory in one of their games in hand, three nil over Crotone. Ronaldo with two goals, so you know, just just yeah, of course he has. Um, it, it seems to be a it seems to be a case of veterans, um, you know, galore uh, in terms of how well they're doing with Ibrahimovic's goal record and Ronaldo's goal record. It's fantastic. Lukaku also with an excellent goal record. Uh, and if Juventus win their next game in hand, they will go to within. Uh, five points of of leading uh, Inter Milan and AC Milan four points behind after their brilliant start. But you, you, I know, Jordan, you, you're obviously very impressed with Lukaku just to play for your team. I love very, Lukaku. Yeah, it, it's interesting because he left when he left Manchester United under when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer decided to sell him. I still think really that was probably the right decision in terms of in terms of what. It wasn't quite what he was looking for. I mean, I'm not. I'm not coming to Anthony Martialis to be honest. But he wasn't quite what he was looking for in a in a in a in a club uh, in their in their philosophy. But he has done phenomenally well, hasn't he, for under a manager that likes uh, the old-fashioned target man who can hold the ball up and do so much more than that, by the way. But he's done. Yeah. He's thrived on the contact. No, he has, and I think it's. <laughs> I think United should have kept him, but I think it's benefited Lukaku more by leaving because he's almost gone to Inter and he, he's. I, I've put on the notes that he's Inter's mm. answer to Ronaldo because I think mm. he's kind of now that that real leader on the pitch and he's the one that his teammates will look to and kind of 
see him as the guy that's going to get the goal, that's going to win them the match, and that's it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just think he's an absolutely fantastic striker, and I think that we, we were discussing it before a little bit. I think that most teams in Europe would look at him and see that as an upgrade. Matt, would you have him at Liverpool? No, I mean, I, I'm a big, big <laughs> fan of him. I think he's he's a brilliant player. He just... He's almost in the wrong era, if you like. He's one of those players that I think is is perfect for Antonio Conte. He's perfect for, for what Inter do at this moment in time. But I think if you put him at Liverpool, at Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, he just wouldn't be the same player, I don't think. I, I don't think he's quite the sort of modern forward and, and everything that you have to be. But he is. He's brilliant at what he does. I just think he he's found essentially the perfect club, the perfect manager to work under. And that's why... We're seeing the the best of him, to be honest. I think there would be, I mean, if 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 he was the right style of of player for for a Manchester United, he he'd still be at Manchester United, wouldn't he? He's he's one of those players that is very 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 good at what he does, but I suppose a little bit like Antonio Conte, he's he's at the right place at the right time. I think. Yeah, no, they're they're definitely a very good match, aren't they? And I mean, as I say, I hope they win Serie A and and then maybe they kick on a little bit more next season into the Champions League. Mm. And I mean, Lautaro Martinez, it compliments him really well because in Lukaku, you've got someone who, and you might say I'm being disrespectful here, but I'm not. When you think of Lukaku, you think of someone who holds the ball up, he uses his physicality to his advantage, very good at scoring goals uh, in a team, like Matt says, that, that play to his strengths. Conte likes to play quickly into Lukaku, usually, uh, not always aerially, but but um, but certainly doesn't ask him to maybe... He's also he's very Link good on the players, but he's mm. capable of running the lines and getting it across to Martinez, which is well. well he did that for the first goal. He did he uh, did really well to get away from Romagnoli, putting the ball across Martinez with a good header. Also, uh, in the apart from a brilliant goal again, where he took the ball around Romagnoli like he wasn't there uh, for the third one. But on the second one, Christian Eriksen played a massive part. Now Eriksen. His career's turned around completely because Conte wanted him wanted him out of the football club. They couldn't find a suitor because he was on too much money. Um, and then he came off the bench in this fixture in the Coppa yeah. uh, Italia and he scored uh, a last-minute winner. And since then, he's found his way back into the team. He started uh, the last three Serie A games playing as a, as a number eight. So... Uh, you've got, I think, the attacking eight, really, because Barella's kind of the perfect mix of of a bit of grit and defensive grit, but also can go forward, can provide attacking spark. Um, and it, it is, I suppose it's nice to see Ericsson do well, because he'd done so well for Tottenham for a long time. Then he clambered for a move. He wanted, a, he wanted an opportunity to win trophies. He went to Inter Milan, didn't fit in with the Conte style at all, but now it's turned around for him and it's easy to forget, but Christian Eriksen's a very, very good player, isn't he? Oh, he's an unbelievable yeah, he player. Again, he's like one of those that he almost, he, he's perfect, as you say, for Inter. He's one of those players that you'd ordinarily, you'd put him as a number 10 and just say, mm. go and do whatever you want. But teams don't really play like that, do they? It's no. it's a difficult one. He's a, such a talented player. I remember when he came through and, and, and was at Ajax and then eventually moved to, to Tottenham. It was one of those that you thought could do really, really well in England. And, mm. Probably didn't quite hit the the level that maybe you thought he would when he was 19, 20 coming through. Maybe that's a, a little bit harsh, but I don't think consistently he was at the absolute top class level. But yeah, if he's if he's in the right system, there's no doubt that he's got loads and loads of ability. I mean, as far as AC Milan are concerned, Jordan, uh, Chiara and Romagnoli have had a really good partnership this season. Donnarumma's obviously a very talented goalkeeper. It all went to mush in the derby. <laughs> it did. Um, and obviously, a nice time of it, did he? He didn't. And then up front, Ibrahimovic was virtually anonymous, but he did force uh, Handanovic into two really, really top drill saves. Um, but I guess with with Milan, the wheels are starting to slightly fall off because they were they were a rampaging bull at the start of the season, defying all expectations. Ibrahimovic was having the season of his life, like a man possessed, forty <laughs> years old, you know, forty years old, ridiculous. Um, goal scoring return in Serie A but I suppose that they're still playing in Europe and they, they actually they, uh, they played in Europe on Thursday night could it be a case of the fairy tales started to turn into reality a little bit for them now? I mean you potentially expect a, a Champions League finish Yeah 
I still think they'll get the Champions League. I, I mean, we actually both tipped them, didn't we, as, as challenges for the Europa League, which we, I mean, I may be regretting a little bit now because yes. they, they threw away, didn't they? Uh, mm. Against 10 men as well, I think. And mm. Yeah, I, I don't really know exactly what's gone, up, gone wrong for them. I think Ibrahimovic, maybe not in the form he was at the start of the season since he's had injuries as well. I think if they do get him back firing, then they'll start to see a little bit more. He did about get a him. brace a few games ago, though. So if it wasn't, too yeah, easy, no, but he's, yeah, no, you're, you're right. But he, I am, yeah, all the um, better than it now. It's something that I would say. Don't you criticize Ibra, not on this one. <laughs> um, but no, it wasn't just, um, you know, I mean, main focus on Serie A there because it was such a big game, arguably the biggest Milan derby in. Maybe ten years. It was. It was. It was that big. First v second. Crazy. It, Lukaku versus versus Ibrahimovic round two. And Lukaku actually uh, said something to Ibrahimovic in Italian that I can't translate on the podcast because, um, well, you could go and find it yourself. It was a little bit naughty, but um, it was certainly a, a, a what you want an attack. Yeah, I kind of. I do actually. I mean, I like. I like the old right. Vieira versus Keane. Miss a bit of that. I think exactly. in there. You do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. That's. Uh, that's the four topics done. Uh, should be on Spotify, Transistor, iTunes, Google Podcasts, all that good jazz. Um, and then thanks to Matt uh, for yes, coming thank on. You very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Yes. God, that was very formal. Very formal. Thank, <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I can be, I can be formal sometimes. Oh yes, you know, it's, it's, it's been a it's been a rather uh, acquaintable pleasure. <laughs> and um, uh, be sure to jo- be sure to join us next week. Be sure, be sure to join us next week for more riveting discussion, all in fifteen minutes, approximately, or less or more, with Jordan Dover being his acquaintable self. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, take care and uh, stay safe during crazy times. And thanks for listening. <laughs>